Well, hey, church family, and happy Easter to you. I'm thrilled that you take the time to listen to our podcast. I'm assuming that if you're listening, it's because you weren't able to gather with us in person at Lake Poway for our 10-year anniversary celebration of the life of our church, and then also, obviously, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And it was an incredible day, and so I'm thrilled that you would take the time, if you couldn't join us in person, to now join us just online via the podcast. So I hope you enjoy listening. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. You can push pause there because if you read that and and you almost feel taken back, like what a weird thing to say. If you're going to speak in the third person about yourself to refer to yourself as the one that Jesus loved, Uh, because that's what the author here is doing, speaking in the third person. For most of us, when we speak in the third person, it's typically Um, self-deprecating. It's me, the young bald one with glasses, is what I typically tell people to look out for. Um, But here John says, I'm the one that Jesus loved, which he's not making a comparison, like I'm the one that he loved more. He's just making a statement about the truth and reality of his experience, that I am someone that he marveled at the fact that I'm someone that is greatly loved by Jesus. And I think that if we walk with Jesus, that that ought to be the confidence we have in our own identity. That this is an identity statement that we can all make too about who we are in our relationship with him, that we are the ones that he loves greatly. So it says here that, that she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. This might be less admirable where he now brags about his speed, but either way, uh, verse five, and he stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who, who came to the tomb first, went in and saw and believed. For as yet, they did not know or they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise again from the dead. You know, echoing from the garden itself, the garden of Eden is the promise from God of a deliverer. In fact, echoing from the garden itself is the promise that God himself would become the deliverer. Not just that he'd come as a deliverer, but that he would come and suffer in order to bring about deliverance. Remember, I will come to crush the serpent's head. But when I do, his venomous sting will hit me and, and he'll bruise my heel. We knew that, that God would come and that he would suffer. But for some, what they had overlooked is something that the prophets had, had echoed for us to know with confidence. And that was the fact that Jesus would not remain in a grave. That he would rise from the dead. Something that John 20 here tells us that the disciples failed to see. They didn't quite understand it. It's Isaiah 53 that after talking about the suffering servant who would come, that, that, that they would divide his, his spoil. And, and then it's, it makes the comment that he would see his, his, uh, his offspring, that, that Jesus would suffer and die. Isaiah 53 gives you great detail of, of how that would take place. But then it makes the statement that he would see his offspring, the byproduct, the fruit 
of his suffering. How would he do that? If it's telling us that he's going to suffer and die, he would only do that if he rose again from the dead. It's Psalm 16, the psalmist writing about the faithfulness of Yahweh to not abandon him. And it climaxes in his, his confidence that, that he would be rescued and that your Holy One will not see corruption. That Messiah would come and though he would die, his body would not begin to decay, that it would be just for a brief period of time and, and later we would learn it would just be for a brief period of three days. It's Psalm 22 that gives the incredible play-by-play -play of what took place at the cross. It's Jesus who from the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from the first verse of that psalm. Psalm 22 verse 1 starts in that exact same manner. And there's a game that the rabbis would play and Jesus was a rabbi. And the game was that they would quote the beginning of a passage and it was the job, the, the expectation of their followers to quote the remainder of that passage. So picture the scene amongst those who gathered around the cross are not just Roman legionnaires. It's not just common folk, but religious leaders and Jesus' own disciples. A few of them have even trickled in. We know that John is there. And as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have began to recite in their minds or maybe even out loud the remainder of that psalm, which spoke in great detail about how he would be openly scorned and mocked, that he'd be poured out like a drink offering that his bones would become disjointed, which is exactly what happens in crucifixion, that his heart would melt within him like wax, that, that he'd suffer from exhaustion and thirst, that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that they gamble over his garments. But then the second half of that psalm is all about him being rescued from death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is how it begins. But the midway point, it shifts to confidence that, that you will not forsake me. And I will see the future generations that will forever be impacted by this sacrifice. Psalm 22 had made it so very clear that a resurrection was in the future. Even Jesus himself knew this and he prophesied about his resurrection. You remember at one point he said, you, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it back. And they pushed back on him saying, it took us decades to build the temple. But they did not know that he was speaking of his body, it says. It says in, in John's gospel that they didn't realize it until after the resurrection. In Matthew 17, Jesus says to them, the son of man, Jesus' favorite self-designation, is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised again the third day. Jesus made a promise to those who followed him, but also to those who questioned him, that the proof of his identity would be clear to all when he rose from the dead. That that is the game changer in the story is the resurrection, not a reincarnation and a, and a new arrival of God in new flesh, but, but a, 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 whole, a whole healed Jesus reemerging from the grave. Resurrection, not reincarnation. Listen, Jesus' perfect life and his, his sinless substitution were proven with the resurrection. In the book of Romans, chapter one, verse four, it says it this way. It says that Jesus was shown to be, or another translation would read it this way. He's openly designated or declared to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appreciate that the Bible is fair in saying that without the resurrection, 
1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Without the resurrection, we don't have a risen Savior. We don't have a Savior at all. We have a failed mission. But our faith is not without confidence. The resurrection itself, it's rooted in history. It's illuminated in scripture. And it's confirmed in experience. Think about that. The resurrection of Jesus is rooted in history. It's illuminated, opened up for us. Its implications are explained to us in scripture. And then it's confirmed in our experience. You know, one of the reasons that the resurrection is so very important is because Easter, Easter addresses humanity's elephant in the room. The thing that, that, that we all see, that we all know to be present, but that we don't want to address the inescapable reality that none of us are comfortable with. It addresses it. There's a French writer in the 1600s. He said it this way. He said, neither the sun nor death can be looked at steadily. And death is that inescapable reality that none of us are comfortable with. And a, a year long battle with a global pandemic has left death's reality looming over us like this perpetual gray cloud that wouldn't leave. And for all of us, we felt the weight, the gravity of death in a new way because all of us are living under this reality in this gray cloud over the last year. You probably know the quote. It was Woody Allen who once said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there though when it happens. There's an ancient Greek writer who said it this way. He said, not even old age knows how to love death. If you look on Amazon, they actually sell that uplifting quote as a refrigerator magnet because there's nothing like waking up in the morning to a cup of coffee and a reminder that not even old age knows how to love death. Listen, death is an enigma. It's a mystery. And the problem is we, we can look around and go, who can tell us with, with any credibility what to expect? But Jesus alone emerges from a grave with the authority to now speak about the afterlife because he lived and died to return and tell us what we can know. One famed storyteller and filmmaker, he says, life and death are just illusions. Whereas Jesus said, death is the enemy. Socrates is credited with the quote that death may be the greatest of all human blessings Whereas Jesus said, it's the work of the devil and the consequence of sin, that sin brought death, that death is unnatural for us. It's Robin Williams who, when he played the role of Peter Pan, he said it this way. He said, to die would be a great adventure. Whereas Jesus said it was the byproduct of our rebellion against God. Listen, what the Bible makes clear, and maybe you've heard it said this way before, is that the resurrection of Jesus, it secures for us forgiveness for the past power for the present, and then hope for the future. That's the resurrection. Easter Sunday, we celebrate the reality that we can have forgiveness for the past, power for the present, and hope always for the future. And those are the three things I just want to take a moment to open up with you. And the first is regarding the past, forgiveness. The resurrection gives us a hope and a confidence that there is forgiveness for the past. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says that he was handed over to die because of our sins. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. 
to bring about our justification. You see, the resurrection proves that Jesus' sacrifice on a cross as our substitute was acceptable to God. You know, the Christmas before COVID hit, so push rewind a year or so, I had an opportunity to speak to a group of students who were staying on campus at SDSU over the Christmas break. And the reason they were staying on campus is because they were students who traveled from India to do their uh, their master's programs in engineering. And so they stuck around on campus and had never had a Christmas experience before. No exposure to, to the story of Christmas at all. This was their very first time pausing to, to reflect on the idea, the reality of Christmas. And it was so fun to get to address this group of people who have no concept of what we're celebrating, who I could get in front of and say, okay, tell me what you know of Christmas. And they'd throw back some of the Christmas carols about here comes Santa Claus or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or we've got Frosty the Snowman. But then we also have these other Christmas songs that we sing that have amazing doctrine and theology wrapped up in them. And, and all of it creates a kind of confusing smorgasbord. And for me to get up and to tell them what we're celebrating and them have never heard this, what we're celebrating is that we believe the God of heaven left heaven and came here in disguise. He came here in the frailty of humanity and embraced every bit of the human experience, every bit of it. That's what we are celebrating. To watch the look on their faces, to have heard that for the very first time as they leaned in, but then the look and the expression on their faces shifted quickly when I told them I don't want to be morbid or sound that way. But the reason that he came here is he was born to die. The response, they were, they were shocked. The, the expression of their face, they were surprised of, of all the messages. It, it's unbelievable that God would come. And if he came, he came in humility and frailty in order to suffer and die. It's shocking, but, but you know that it's true. That the birth of Jesus brings God to man, but it's the cross of Jesus that will bring man back to God. You see, the prophet Isaiah rightly said it this way, that he would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That's the punishment that brought about peace for us was something he paid for. By his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. Make no mistake, Jesus bore the penalty and punishment for sin. But don't make the mistake of thinking or supposing it was his sin that he suffered for. It was my sin, it was our sin that he took on, that he took away, that he paid for. Remember, Jesus' first words from the cross were, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Some Greek linguists and commentators, they look at the sentence structure of what Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them. And the way that that sentence is constructed in scripture, they say that it implies to us that it's not just something he said once, but that it was something he repeated, that that's what the gospel writer is telling us, that he didn't just say it, he repeated it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As they whipped and beat him, 39 lashes on his back and across his chest. 
Those lashes were meant to bring about confession of crimes. This was their way of of solving the unsolved crimes that that existed in the culture. They beat the person to a pulp so that they would cry out and say, okay, okay, I also did this, or I'll give you information on that, and then they would show them mercy. But Jesus, like a lamb before the slaughter, is, is silent. Jesus did not utter a word because he had nothing to confess. Historians refer to the people who had been through a beating like that, the Roman flogging. They referred to them as the undead because they looked as if death had already touched them completely. They were alive, but they knew that they would not keep living for long. The undead, historians say that internal organs would be exposed after the end of that flogging, that, that, that someone would be so ripped apart that people would look away. And there's Jesus hunched over receiving those blows saying, Father, forgive them. It's Jesus being forced to carry his own cross and and they've mocked him and placed the robe on his back. The king, hail the king. They've beat the crown of thorns into his brow and his strength fails him and they mock him. And again, he utters, Father, forgive them. They get to the place where they're going to crucify him, the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And when they place him upright on it, after nailing the nails into him, when the weight of his body sags against those nails, that that's what they hear him cry out, Father, forgive them. Think of this prayer. There's no resentment in his voice or in his mind where he would have requested judgment from God. There's no self-pity in his heart or the request he makes would have been to the soldiers who stood by him. But instead he prayed, Father, forgive them. It's not surprising to us who are familiar with the gospels and have looked at the life of Jesus before. It's not surprising that his first words from his lips were a prayer. What is surprising though is that it wasn't a prayer for himself. Neither was it a prayer for his friends. His prayer was for his enemies. The religious leaders who still stood there mocking him, the scriptures say. The soldiers who, after mercilessly beating him, are now counting him as already dead and gambling for his clothing in front of him. He's praying for the crowd who stood by in anticipation, waiting and wanting to see him die. He said, Father, forgive them. In order for them to be forgiven, though, Jesus had to take upon himself their condemnation. What he's praying here is, Father, take me. Father, let me accept me in their place. When you think about it, the cross became the pulpit from which God boldly and clearly preached his love for the world in a way that he never had before. Every other religion leaves you trying to do your absolute best to get a distant God to notice you, but not Christianity. The cross says something so very different. The cross proves something so very different than that. God came so near to you that he suffered for you. And I believe that he is so near you that he continues to suffer with you. It's not the only thing Jesus cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them. He also would cry out, it is finished before breathing his last breath. And listen, the resurrection proved that that was true that it was finished, accomplished, that the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted. It proves that my sin has been paid for. Jesus' final statement from the cross can become then heaven's first pronouncement over you, that it's finished, 
that everything's been accomplished, that everything that you need to do to be made right with God again has been taken for, supplied by Jesus himself on your behalf. It's finished. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus secures for us forgiveness for the past, but also power for the present and hope for the future. That second thing, power for the present. Scripture tells us that when Jesus breathed his last breath, that something dramatic took place physically, I think that gave imagery to something amazing that was taking place spiritually. And that's that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when that happened, it demonstrated that something incredibly significant took place. It exposed the Ark of the Covenant or or maybe just the place where the Ark would have dwelt if Indiana Jones or someone else has already come through and taken it from there. But but what it exposed is the place that, that God's glory once dwelt separated from mankind, that there no longer would be separation. What it did is it, it rendered the temple itself essentially irrelevant and it indicated that God would no longer be separated from his people. You see, the biggest and most significant shift experientially between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament follower of Jesus is that God is now united with his people. The Spirit of God now dwelling inside of his people. And that is made possible because Jesus, he died and rose again. Now, if you're, if you're around the church often, you know that I can get a bit nerdy and, and forgive me, but I'm going to get a bit nerdy with you just for a moment because I think that there's many reasons why you could trust the resurrection to have actually taken place as a fact of history. I mean, what we could do is we could point to the rise of Christianity in the first century in Jerusalem, that in the very place where Jesus had died and been buried, that that's where historians tell us it kicked off, that in that same time frame, not two centuries later with people showing up saying Jesus is alive or traveling to Ethiopia and telling people in a distant land that Jesus had risen from the dead. No, in the place at the time where all they needed to do to shut them up is drag out a body. And they didn't because they couldn't, because they didn't have a body to bring out because he was alive. Think of it this way. It'd be like if I went around uh, this, this weekend telling people that I spent the weekend with Kobe Bryant or, or I spent the weekend with Princess Diana or, or Elvis is still, he, he's, he's yet to truly leave the building. If I, if I went out telling people those things, at some point, someone would tell me it's insensitive that you're saying that, but often I'd hear probably just shut up. No one believes you. But the true way to shut someone up, if that's the report that someone is alive, is to take them to a grave and to bring out a body. The two leading authorities in the first century in that area, in Jerusalem, were the Roman government who wanted to stop the message of Jesus followers and the religious, Jewish religious leaders who hated the message so much that they began to persecute and even murder early followers of Jesus. All they needed to do to shut them up was bring out a body. And they didn't do that because they couldn't do that. We could talk about the massive shift that took place that historians tell us about uh, of thousands of followers of Jesus, massive shift where they removed themselves from some of their Jewish heritage and expectations that they'd lived under. Think about it for, for historians to mention that, that there were thousands of Jews who stopped bringing animal sacrifices to the temple, that, that it ceased, that it stopped because they believed that Jesus, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, was the once and for all sacrifice. That for them, that they no longer kept a kosher dietary restriction or that, that they no longer separated themselves from Gentiles, not only eating with them, but even intermarrying with them is a massive cultural shift. 
We could bring up the fact that they were no longer observing the Sabbath on a Saturday, but that they were instead gathering on a Sunday to celebrate what they called the Lord's Day because it was the day that they remembered that Jesus had risen. Now, why do those things matter? Because those things are bigger than just cultural identity. You grow up as a young person in a Jewish household where you're told that's not just how we identify as unique and different culturally, but that's how we identify as being acceptable and pleasing to God by adhering to those expectations. If you believe that that was your route to acceptance with God and favor with him, then to stop doing that is a big deal. Think of it this way. What if I told you today that I've got great news and and that what I did was this weekend, I paid off your car loan. I went to your creditor. I wrote them a check. It's paid for. Don't bother making another payment. Well, if you took me at my word and and you decided that you'd cancel payment, then what's at risk there? What's at stake is that it's very possible that I am responsible for ruining your credit. It's very very possible that that I'm responsible for your car getting repoed. It's very possible that I'm responsible for a lot of awkward conversations over the next couple of years with Uber drivers that you get to look forward to now. Because you know that the stakes are pretty high, you'd probably follow up and say, I want to be certain that he actually paid this off. Now think about this, for thousands, tens of thousands even of Jews in the first century, to stop doing what they did was not just about believing someone about a stop payment on an automobile. These were the payments, quote unquote, that they believed made them acceptable in God's sight. They stopped doing the things that they thought bought favor with God because they believed in the resurrection, because for many of them, they had seen the risen Lord themselves. Listen, we could point to even the incredible persecution and death of Jesus' disciples. That for so many of his disciples who who were in the first century going out preaching that he was alive, that they would be tortured and murdered for their faith. For some, they'd be crucified, refusing to recant their faith. For Peter himself, he says, I'm not worthy to die in the manner of my Lord. And they flipped his cross upside down. And that's how he would see his end come. For others, they'd be shot through with arrows like Luke or run through with a spear. For some, they'd be thrown into ovens. For one, Bartholomew, he'd even, historians tell us, be flayed alive. They'd peel the skin off his body while he refused to take back his claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. I have a difficult time not believing their testimony when they were willing to die for it. Now push, pause, think for a second. Does that mean that anyone who's willing to die for something that their death proves that what they're willing to die for is true and trustworthy? Well, no. With all sensitivity, and I realize my own kids are here, but even for a suicide bomber who believes that this act, this violent act of taking others' lives would build them credit and favor in their religion, for them to take their own life and the lives of others does not prove that what they believe is true because what they believe has been handed over to them since the seventh century. They're believing the report that they were told was true. The difference is the disciples were the ones who first reported it. The disciples were the original source. They didn't just hear something and then willing to die for what they heard and believed to be true. They were the ones who, if it was a lie, they started it. They were the ones who, if it was true, they knew it because they were the first-hand eyewitnesses. That's the difference. We're not talking about a distant echo of a rumor reaching from the 7th century. We're talking about people who stood there and said, no, I saw him with my own eyes alive. 
My friends, we could even point to just how ridiculous the alternative theories are regarding Jesus and what could have happened if he didn't rise from the dead. The most popular one is known as the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't die, he merely swooned. He passed out on the cross. 39 lashes he goes through. Remember, they call them the undead because they are certain that they'll never live again. Internal organs exposed, bleeding out, going into shock, collapsing on the ground, taken to the cross, six hours exposed to the elements. And then they pierce him through the side with a spear, blood and water coming out, blood and water medical professionals today in our modern setting would say that the only reason that water would emerge is that, that the heart had ruptured And so blood and water come out because of a broken heart, because of a massive heart attack that takes place, cardiac arrest. After all of that, they take him down from the the cross. They place him in a tomb. He's not quite dead yet. If you've seen Monty Python, uh, not quite dead yet. Yes. And they place him in a tomb. And all that Jesus needed was three days of rest. No medical attention, no food, no water, no nothing. Three days of rest. At the end of that three days, he comes to, realizes I'm feeling so good that he pushes the stone away, sneaks past the guards or beats them up and and runs off into obscurity to die in the streets, naked and alone, realizing that, oh my goodness, I'm not feeling quite as good as I thought I was. I'm more dead than I thought I was. And collapsing in the street and someone finding this, this body that's been beat to a pulp that they find in the street and not know who he is and someone throws his body into a mass grave and that's how Jesus' story ends. That's the best, that's the best, most popular response to the resurrection claim is that he wasn't quite dead yet. He had merely swooned. Can I tell you though that I, what I think is the most compelling evidence that we have for the resurrection is the life-giving, life-changing power that Jesus promised that's displayed in the lives of his people all throughout the centuries. Remember, Jesus had told his friends, it's better for you if I go. For if I go, I will send another helper and the Holy Spirit will be not just with you, but in you. Your Bible says it this way, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, he lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit and power living within you. I mean, how can anyone argue with the powerful testimony of a changed and a transformed life? Someone who's set free from sin and addiction, the restoration of a marriage and of a family, a release of bitterness and unforgiveness, an ability to self-sacrificially love as Jesus has loved us. There are millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people over the centuries who have lived lives that have been radically changed and transformed by the life-giving power of a living Savior at work in their life. My friends, for so many of you, that's your testimony. That's your story personally. That your life is so radically different from what you were or who you were before you encountered your risen Savior and His life-giving, life-transforming work began in your life. There's incredible life-changing power in the gospel because we have a risen Savior. There's forgiveness for the past. There is power for the present, but there's hope also for the future. Hope for the future. There's a French novelist and playwright named Thomas Bernhard who's referred to by his critics as the unrelenting critic of religion. But here's what he said. 
He said, everything is ridiculous when one thinks of death. Everything is ridiculous when one thinks of death. Now think about it. If you extract Jesus from our world, what hope is there? What hope is there of things even being right again here? Where for so long what we've heard is, as humanity is that time, that technology, that education are the things that are going to solve this problem, this mess that we're in. But the more time that goes by, the more technology we have, the more education we have, it hasn't seemed to solve anything. As society progresses and quote-unquote evolves, at the same time, simultaneously, we are devolving into greater depths, into greater division. We've seen that even again this year illustrated for us. Listen, if we extract Jesus from the world, what hope is there even of having purpose in this life, of, of there being any meaning or purpose in life? Because if we've just evolved here by random chance and progress is made by survival of the fittest and leaving behind the weak, if we truly leave that, live that way, well, our hearts won't allow us to live the lives that our minds are telling us we ought to live. Because to live that way of survival of the fittest and trample on the weak would be inhumane. It would be unhuman. Our hearts betray us and betray the narrative that we're meant to believe. Oh, if we extract Jesus from our world, what hope is there also, though, of an afterlife? In 1 Peter, it says it this way, that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. A living hope of an inheritance. It's beautiful. We have hope for the future. It's been wisely said that earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. My friends, we have hope for our future. You see, the message of the resurrection is a message for all of creation. That God will make things good and right and beautiful again. But it's a message for every individual also. A message about forgiveness of sin, about, about the power to have your life changed and transformed, about hope for a wonderful future ahead of us. Okay, I, I'm all done. Here's how I wrap up. This morning as I left our house, I, I picked this, and some of you, you're, you're in the back and I'm short. Uh, I'll blame it on that, but you can't even see this. But as I left our house today, I, I picked this rose. It was the first blossom on our rose bushes. Four years ago, Lindsay and I moved our family into the family home that her great-grandpa had owned for decades, and he had passed away at nearly the age of 100, and then we ended up buying the house from the family and moving in. The family had one request for us. They said, you can change anything you'd like at this house, but we'd ask that you'd not change the rose bushes out front because they were Gramps' favorites. Because decades ago, he had planted some of these rose bushes for late great-grandma, his wife, who had died some time ago. And so for them, for the family, these roses represent more than just a flower or a blossom. When we see the first blossom of something, the first blossom of spring, the first fruits is what we call it, it's a promise of something. It's not just the, sight of first, the first sight of something beautiful, it's the promise that there's more to come. See, that's what's so exciting is that Lindsay and I, even just yesterday, were out in our front yard looking and starting to see that things are starting to bud, and then we saw that first blossom. Jesus is the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead, Scripture says. He's the first blossom in spring 
that reminds us that there's more life, that there's more beauty to come. His resurrection is a promise of something. It's a promise like the first blossom, that there's more life, that there's more beauty ahead of us. My friends, your heart may have come here down and sorrowful, but leave here remembering that he is the first fruits of those who will die, that there's more life, that there's more beauty ahead of us. Jesus would say this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. But then he asked, do you believe this? Do you believe this? My friends, the most important question you'll ever answer is the question of what you do with Jesus. What did you do with Jesus? On a resurrection day, it's yours to consider. What will you do with Jesus, a risen Savior who suffered and died for you? I would say that death is no longer the enemy for the follower of Jesus. A wasted life is. Because the sting of death has been removed. The resurrection of Jesus secures for us forgiveness for the past, power for the present, and hope always for the future. 